0: good morning again. It is the 11th of March. It's Friday, 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 Friday. I don't know if Friday is still as exciting at your house as it is at mine, um, but I'm pretty excited that it's Friday. Uh, and I uh, I have lots of plans for the weekend. And then um, at my house, the plan is the plans have changed because the weather is going to, of necessity, make our plans different tomorrow than what we had originally planned. So the plan is the plans have changed. And I want you to be responsive and flexible and sensitive to all the things today over which you have no control. I have no control over the weather. I mean, much to my chagrin, but I have no control over the weather other than to, you know, pray weather prayers. And so the plan is the plan has changed. And so I will not be doing the things tomorrow that I maybe had anticipated doing that I had put on my calendar. And I will instead be doing, I think, probably my taxes. (laughs) Because that is something um, sitting all gathered in a shoebox that definitely needs to be done um, is not actually on my calendar at any point in time to do. And it looks like I will be at home tomorrow. And so there you go. Probably a good day to do my taxes. How about you? What are your plans? What's up this weekend, you can always share with me on the text line, 877-933-2484. Um, I want to issue one warning this weekend. There is lots and lots and lots of diss and misinformation out there related to um, Russia's war um, on Ukraine. So be careful. Be careful of not only the media that you consume, but in particular, the media that you pass along to others. Um, this is definitely a verify, verify, verify situation. So we talked about the method of sifting social media um, before we pass it along. So stop, like actually stop and consider the source, investigate um, whether or not, you know, like, right, this is true. Um, Find the source, filter out sources that you know, you know, are obviously not true. Um, trace it to the source where you can. Anyway, sift, 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 sift. There might be a Christian version of this. Um, Stop, investigate, filter, and then ask yourself, is it true? Is it true? Right. Because that's what I only want to be passing along things that I can verify as true. All right. um, Adam Holtz is here from Focus on the Family's Plugged In. We have lots and lots to talk about today. I'm going to direct you to PluggedIn.com for some movie reviews and some great stuff posted uh, there on the blog. Adam Holtz will be with us next. Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In joins us now. Good morning, sir.
1: Good morning, Carmen. How are you today?
0: I am I am well. It is well with my soul. Um, let's talk about some reviews posted at PluggedIn.com. I actually got an invitation to see Tyson's run tomorrow. Um, yeah. I don't know that I would be able to get out to uh, to make that, but tell me a little bit about it.
1: This is a quiet little Christian movie about a 15-year-old boy who has a difficult relationship with his dad. And that difficulty stems from two things. One, it stems from the fact that he's pretty severely autistic. And the other is that his dad is the coach of a high school football team and he's won five state championships in a row. And so I think the distance between dad's hopes for what his son would be and who his son actually is It's a pretty big gulf, and Dad's pretty terse. He's a man of few words. Um, Meanwhile, Mom has pretty much raised him and homeschooled him and kept him out of sight. He's not an intentional secret, per se, but Tyson is not something that anybody that uh, the the coach's fans really know about. But he is now 15, and she is uh, at the limit of what she can effectively do as a homeschooler. So he starts going to high school chaos ensues, people mock him, Uh, dad has to kind of step in and have a reality check, but along the way he uh, he meets an Ethiopian who is a long distance runner and sort of falls in love with the idea of running, and so he ends up running a marathon, and this is why it's called Tyson's Run. This is a nice quiet little Christian movie, there's not much content, there's actually not a ton of Christian content either, uh, a couple of references to scripture in a church service. But um, I think a good story about how we deal with disappointment. And it's clear that this is a dad who is disappointed in what's happened with his son, even as mom has tried to overcompensate and love him well. So it had a very Kendrick Brothers kind of vibe to it. If you enjoyed facing the champions, or excuse me, facing the giants or overcomer, um, I think you'll you'll potentially really enjoy this film.
0: Super helpful. All right. How about the Atom project? Is this your project?
1: I wish. Actually, I don't wish. (laughs) I don't know that I want to claim this one as my own. This is a Ryan Reynolds action, mystery, sci-fi comedy. Uh, And Ryan Reynolds plays uh, a guy in 2050. Uh, He and his wife are spaceship pilots who time travel. His wife is killed. It's listed as an accident. He believes it was a murder back in 2018, which is where she was time traveling to. He tries to follow her to 2018, and as often happens with time travel, things go awry. He ends up in 2022 instead, where he runs into his 12-year-old self. Uh, If you've ever seen Bruce Willis's movie, The Kid, this is sort of a sci-fi take on that idea. And together they have to solve the mystery. Oh yeah, and put the timeline back together because it's always bad when you run into your former or younger self in a time travel movie. So PG thirteen, uh, it's on Netflix. It's a fun movie, a ton of profanity, uh, and it mm. just feels like an unforced error to me. I think for a lot of people, you know, when once you get past fifty plus profanities, you're like, yeah, oh, no, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to watch something else.
0: Okay, then um then quickly let's talk about Turning Red.
1: Turning Red is Pixar's latest movie and it's streaming on Disney Plus. It is about a teenage girl named May. She's of Chinese well, she's Chinese American, but obviously of Chinese descent. And May comes from a family in which the women of the family, when they hit puberty, also turn into a giant red panda to defend their village. Well, they only had to defend their village like five hundred years ago, and now it 's just kind of a nuisance and So this is May learning to tame the giant red panda inside her, uh, and they actually go through a ceremony to kind of separate out the panda personality, essence, spirit, whatever you want to call it from the girl um, <coughs> excuse me the uh, The whole premise of the giant red panda is sort of a metaphor for adolescence. And this is a story about May's relationship with her mom. Um, it's Pixar, it's pretty well done, but I think it retreads some of the territory that we saw with Brave. I think Brave did it a lot better in part because this movie really celebrates May's independence and her fierce spirit to a fault in that she doesn't treat her mother very well and really is, uh, is not doesn't listen very well. So I don't think it does parents any favors. It also deals, quite frankly, with uh, the biological changes that uh, a girl goes through in puberty. Um, And so I think there will be parents who will not be expecting uh, an anatomy class in this movie. So it would be good to check out our full review and get a better sense of what we're talking about there, if this one's on your radar.
0: Yeah. Um, also just, you know, one of my pet peeves, the use of OMG. I just don't I just I'm just not a fan. I'm just not yeah. a fan of that. Cause no, because we know what it I is. I think it just it just flirts right up against the taking God's name in vain. And um, you know, I don't I yeah, I just I don't I don't want my kids doing that. Okay. Yep. Uh, we're gonna take a very, very brief break. Um Adam Holtz and I are gonna continue our conversation in just a moment. There's tons of great stuff at the plugged in website right now. Um a couple of things on the blog Um, at PluggedIn.com. One thing on board games, another on the best movies to stream as a family in the month of March. Um, I want to highlight both of those because I want to have a conversation with Adam when we come back about war coverage, the images associated with it, and recommendations for families that are trying to broach the subject and explore the themes of war with our kids. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In. All right, Adam, so as we have all been listening to and watching coverage related to the ongoing war in Ukraine, um, Russian aggression there, Russia is indiscriminately attacking civilians, targeting civilians. Um, The images coming out are of pregnant women on stretchers, Um, after a maternity ward was bombed, um, entire families um, lying dead in the street after a mortar attack and an evacuation route. The images are horrific. Um, I want to talk about that in relationship to um, be careful, little eyes, what you see, um, and also just the responsibility to know what's happening in the world, but also not becoming like weird voyeurs
1: Carmen, there's so much to talk about here, and I have three kids who are 11, 13, and 15, and even though those age ranges are fairly close, I would say they process those images really differently. So the first thing I want to say is just know your kids, that uh, we need to start with an understanding that even if kids are roughly the same age, they may or may not process things the same way. Um, I think that if we sit and watch war coverage silently and don't talk about it, it, what it shows is that that story, we're just consuming those stories the same way we consume everything else. And so it just becomes potentially another thing on the screen. Um, I think the other thing that we need to do as parents is um, we need to be paying attention to what we're watching. And sometimes we just, and maybe most of the time, just turn it off because our kids don't need to see that. But I also think that we can take cues from our kids to a certain extent, like when they're actively asking questions, that's an opportunity for us to talk about what's happening with the war. And when they get really quiet, that's a sign that they may not know how to process what they're seeing. Um, and and again i'm i 'm speaking in really, really, really broad generalities here because all of these things are child specific, but I have my oldest who 's fifteen he 's really interested in war he 's or not war in history in politics, and he 's very, very engaged in this story. Um, my daughters, I think, are more sensitive and perhaps not as naturally interested. And so we have different conversations. They're not they're not the same conversations. And, you know, um, what we're seeing in these images, as you just pointed out, are the equivalent to what we would see in an R-rated movie, right? I mean, these are images of real and horrific violence. And I think this is one of the first conflicts where we're all processing it in real time with real images and real stories. Um, and... Uh, your warning earlier to be careful what we just sort of accept as the truth is, is really well well taken. But obviously, we're seeing these images. And so we've got to stop and probably have a bigger conversation about the reality of evil in the world. That evil has not gone away since the fall of the Cold War. And I think this sort of is a shocking reminder that there's still real evil out there. And it's being manifested in this war and so we have to figure out how to deal with that.
0: There are so many um, incredible images um, and images are, you know, like stories or their potential stories. And so that's one of the things that I, um, I have started doing. Um, and depending on the age of of the child, right? The story they see in the picture can be very, very different. So there yeah. was an image yesterday, of um, you know, there's there have been lots of images at these train stations in Poland, of these tens of thousands of people every single day, overwhelmingly women with children, many of them yeah. with very small children whom they have carried physically for days. And the yeah. image yesterday that caught my attention um, was of just these strollers lined up, and in the bottom yeah. of the stroller, a package of. Um, of you know diapers and a bottle and I you mean know and and formula like on and, on and on like these these strollers they're just lined up they're empty they're just lined up waiting and so when I ask my eight year old granddaughter what what does this picture tell you right she has a different story to tell than my eighteen year old she's they they see something right so Eliana who's eighteen sees the humanity people everywhere are the same, and it is, can be really tiresome to carry a baby or a, or a toddler um, for days on end. And it's just the gift of having somewhere to set that child down um, is an amazing, that is an amazing gift. Um, Evelyn, who's, you know, little, she saw something different, right? To her, it looked like a parade. Like, right? There's no, there's no, there are no Um, there are no children in those strollers yet. They're waiting for the train to arrive, and then there's going to be this great parade, right? So it's just a very different um, story that emerges um, when we just ask, what do you see in this picture? But I do think we have to be careful which pictures we ask that question about. Um, I think that your observation that every child is different and we need to know our kids and we need to know when our kid goes silent what that means or when our kid withdraws physically from the room what that means or when our kid is um, overly interested in seeing um, particularly violent images Um, like we we need to ask ourselves what does that tell me about my kid um, and what kind of conversation do I need to to seek to have with them
1: yeah no that's that's absolutely right and I think that we can sometimes, well, we talk about media discernment a lot at Plugged In, and typically the context in which we're talking about that is fictional stories, movies, TV shows, that sort of thing. Um, But we need to exercise media discernment with the real stories, too. And I think that we can sort of hermetically seal that off as a totally different category. But the younger a child is, the less they have the ability to distinguish between what's real and what's fantasy. And so, um, we have to, we have the responsibility to help guide them and to know when, even if we want to know more, it's time for us to disengage for their sake. Um, or just the opposite when they want to know more, maybe we have a deeper conversation than we thought we were ready for. I mean, I think it can go both ways, but but we we really need to be paying attention and I think that maybe is the key thing is are we paying attention are we giving our kids space to just ask about things like
0: mm-hmm.
1: my middle daughter suddenly became very curious about nuclear weapons you know mm-hmm. and for those mm-hmm. of us who sure. for those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s we sort of just came to Uh, an uneasy detente, which was a word we used a lot in the 70s and 80s. You know, we sort of made, not made peace with, but just accepted the reality that we could all be killed at any moment. And now we have an entire generation that for 30 years, they have never had to carry that weight psychologically. And they also want to understand what the reality of the threat is. And so there's all sorts of stuff that those of us who are 45 or 50 plus just take for granted as basic knowledge of the world that uh, even millennials may not have, let alone our kids. Um, and so, um, just trying to figure out, okay, how do we talk about what a nuclear weapon does? <laughs> um, yeah. And how do we process that with them? Um, and and those are, they're mm-hmm. weird questions to be asking because we never thought we were gonna have to ask them again or deal with them. Mm-hmm. But, he, but here we are, it feels like 1984 all over again.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, now I guess I'm going to make an assignment because we, um, we don't have time to talk about, um, <laughs> Carmen's like list of 50 movies that she wanted feedback on from Adam today. Um, right. So Which here was
1: my, I was, I was kind of <laughs> daunted by your list.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I am next week going to be looking at, are you with us next week or are you on spring break?
1: Uh, I'm here next week. I'm out. The oh, good.
0: Week. Well, then then this assignment is for you. Um, Recommendations for families that are trying to explore those subjects. So, you know, you've got a kid who's now interested in the themes of war, uh, World War II in uh, particular, um, or you've got uh, a a child who's now interested in having a conversation about nuclear weapons, um, or you just want to be able to have a movie that has some good themes in it in terms of helping us understand what's happening. So next week, how about some recommendations for families that are just trying to broach the subjects and explore the themes of war with their kids?
1: I would love to talk about that and I'm glad you've given me a week to think about it.
0: I have not only given you a week to think about it, I have given you a starter list in our notes of like I know. I know. So you gave you me go. a
1: day to think about it yesterday, and <laughs> yeah. so I'm going to take.
0: Well, this this just proves to everybody that Carmen is doing her homework, and then she is assigning homework yeah. to others. So there you go. No, it this was an,
1: it's an impressive list. <laughs>
0: All right. That's Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In. And we're already teeing up our conversation for next week. He joins us every Friday and we love him. Um, Check out what he's writing and tons of good resources at PluggedIn.com. And if you don't want to wait until next week, when you go to PluggedIn.com, you can type the word war into the search box. You're going to have to filter your list for because, you know, obviously there's, you know, lots of wars in featured in films that would not be the kind of content that are necessarily going to provoke conversation that you'd want to have. But let me tell you, there's tons of movies that come up um, if you type the word war into the search box at PluggedIn.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBerge and this is Faith Radio. So sometimes uh, we just need a moment to talk amongst ourselves. And so that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen Leberge. Um When you think about what you say, the words you use, and the words that other people use, if I were to um, ask you how you define hate speech, how would you answer that question? And then my follow-up might be, um when and where is hate speech ever appropriate, ever appropriate? and i I lift that up that those questions up because um, Facebook and Instagram, both of which are uh, owned by the parent company meta, um, is has announced a temporary change, a temporary change to hate speech policies. On both Facebook and Instagram. They are allowing users in some countries to call for violence against particular Russian individuals, not Russian citizens writ large, but particular individuals, um, allowing for a call for violence against Russian soldiers in the context of the Ukrainian invasion. Um, and so here's what Meta is saying in its internal emails there are temporary allowances to be made, quote, for forms of political expression that would normally violate our rules, like violent speech, including death to the Russian invaders. Meta uh, on both Facebook and Instagram is also temporarily allowing some posts that call for the death of particular individuals, including Russian President Vladimir Putin, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko and others as well, but only, again, in particular countries, Russia, Ukraine, and Poland. The platforms, Meta says, will not allow for calls of general violence against Russian citizens, Russian civilians, excuse me, civilians, which leads me to ask and wonder, is there ever an appropriate time to express hate speech, violent speech, the provocation of violence, Um, a call for an assassination, particularly of a head of state. This, I think, is the challenge of situational ethics. If we can temporarily change um, our tolerance level for hate speech on particular platforms, in particular discourse, because of a particular situation, what does that say about um, the, the underlying value, moral value, the underlying moral conviction. If hate speech is wrong in times of peace, why is hate speech okay in times of war? I mean, I, I, I'm asking this like as an honest question uh, in conversation with you today. We are free speech people. And so, I mean, as, as Americans, we're free speech people. And we, we place a very, very high value on free speech. We don't like censored speech. And so maybe you don't like that Facebook and Instagram ever censor any speech. Maybe you think they should be platforms where there's just a hate speech free-for-all all the time. Well, there's not. They censor speech um, in these uh, according to these standards related to hate speech all the time. But now they're saying, well, in these places, these forms of hate speech are going to be allowed. And I just want you to ask yourself, who controls the conversation when, you know, when decisions are being made about what, what kinds of speech, what phrases, what threats of violence against particular individuals even is allowed on certain platforms at certain periods of time in certain places? It's a It's an important conversation for us to have. And I just wanted to surface the question today. Hate speech, the challenge of situational ethics— the days in which we live, um, you know, and the challenges uh, in terms of a conversation about free speech and censored speech. So all of that uh, going on in my mind this morning. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We're going to talk amongst ourselves in just a moment. Thank you for your contributions to the conversation. You can text me, uh, give me your input, your thoughts. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. In in a, you know, in part of this conversation about hate speech and censorship, or free speech, or free expression, um, and situational ethics. The move of Meta, the parent company of Facebook, and Instagram to allow for temporary allowances of hate speech, forms of political expression that would normally violate their hate speech rules um, and speech related to violence, such as death to the Russian invaders. Um, That's the conversation that uh, I'm I'm seeking to have with you this morning. So, a little input from folks chiming in. Piran reminds us that there's a time for war and a time for peace, clearly, a, uh, a nod there to Ecclesiastes. Um, Piran goes on to say that um, uh, there's this approach to freedom of expression. She's in Canada. She reminds me. I'm Canadian. So we do freedom of expression, not actually free speech. So, for example, during World War II, openly speaking against the Nazis was actually a good thing. But in the year 2022, not OK for people to use their speech to attempt to bring the Nazis back. Um, right. So we're talking there about the way as a society uh certain patterns of speech and and particular things become normative and how the majority actually does decide um what is considered safe constructive you know and on the to the converse hate speech as well um culture shifts on these and that's what that's the conversation i'm also trying to provoke in terms of situational ethics because there are those who would argue that um It is hateful to suggest that biology is fixed, and there are people who would suggest that it is hateful to um, suggest that if there is a heaven, everyone's not going there necessarily, Um, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. First of all, that people need to be saved, that sin is real. So I'm not suggesting to you that those are the conversations being had about hate speech and what constitutes hate speech, I'm seeking to provoke among us a conversation and the recognition that if the definition of hate speech is shifting and can shift this quickly um, and can be allowed in relationship to certain individuals about certain things, um, then we have to pay attention as Christians. Because here you have a private company, Meta, not only defining what is and isn't hate speech, but defining who and where particular forms of calls for violence can be issued and against whom and not against whom. Like That's a significant um, cultural moment. And you may say to yourself, hey, I'm totally fine with this, that, or the other thing. I'm trying to seek to have us cultivate the mind of Christ on the issues of our day. And when we talk about free speech or um, freedom of expression versus cens- censored speech and censorship, and we talk about private companies being in a position to not only censor speech, but um, literally at the flip of a switch or the turn of a button, or I don't know how it all works. But They can, at both Facebook and Instagram, filter what is posted in these particular places, Russia, Ukraine, and Poland, allowing for posts that call for death to two heads of state and uh, particular people and not others. They can turn that on and off at Facebook and Instagram, that filtering can take place, which means that the definition of hate speech could certainly be... Um, amplified to filter out any language, any keywords, any viewpoint. And I think that as Christians, we better pay attention to that. We better pay close attention to the fact that in in a string of emails, Meta decided they were going to allow users in some countries to openly call for violence, that they were going to suspend their hate speech Rules in some places and in some cases, because of the challenge of uh, of the situation that is situational ethics applied to the way a company is functioning and it has real world impacts um, for for all of us for all of us um, so uh, Deborah chiming in hate speech, quote unquote, and scare quotes, because that's, that's exactly, uh, Deborah, how I see it as well. Uh, hate speech is often an underhanded method that the media uses to censor um, what goes against their worldview. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly what I am um, seeking to illuminate among us today. Um, as soon as something is labeled hate speech, there's going to be a conversation. I mean, obviously, we're we're going to disallow it in you know on our cultural platforms. Uh, but who gets to decide what is and isn't hate speech? Meta has now decided that even though um, these things are still regarded as hate speech, they are now okay temporarily allowed because of the context because the situation has changed in these particular places: Russia, Ukraine, and Poland. And so there's an allowance for. Um, this language in those places, um, because of the situation, that's situational ethics. And as Christians, we have to think about that. Um, our our ethics cannot be uh, based on the shifting situations of the time of the day. We have to have an understanding of love and hate and the appropriateness of language in all times and in all circumstances, because we are always and in all ways um, under the authority of Jesus Christ. Um, yes, who alone um, saves. All right, we are going to um, shift gears when we come back from a very, very brief break. Um, I'm going um, to ask you about this fascinating headline. Again, it's a worldview headline. It's actually at Mother Jones. There are some um, folks on the political right um, who are uh, being cast as not only activist, but quote, hell-bent on transforming the Catholic Church, starting with the Pope, we're gonna talk about that next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: I know gonna be some yes. I swear that love will find you in your head.
0: I feel it in me like the beach. I read widely, you know that. I um I read really widely, so you don't maybe have to read it all, but I do um I want you to know sort of what the world is saying not only about Christians and American Christians and maybe American evangelical Christians and Roman Catholic Christians who actually believe in values of life and um, and sexuality, gender identity, marriage, those kinds of things. Um, but what secular journalists do in terms of weaving narratives together that are an assessment, they they are an assessment of not only Christians and Christianity, but the relationship of those who identify as Christians and those on, um, I, I'm, I'm going to say the far right. It's also described as the alt-right. It's also described as Christian nationalism. It's also, I mean, it's got lots of descriptors. And, um, The weaving together of the two is significant um, and gross, and we ought to recognize that. We ought to recognize that. And so I lift up this piece to you um, that's posted at Mother Jones because MotherJones.com is in no way seeking to um, be terribly fair to people who would identify, self-identify as evangelical Christians or evangelical Catholic Christians um, or— uh, or certainly those who advance um, concerns to the, to the right of center, I will say. But as you read this, I hope you are also um, disgusted by the way Christian imagery has been used um, by people advancing a particular politica, political agenda. And I hope you see it, that it's gross, the whole thing. The whole thing's gross, We ought to have that kind of reaction and response. Um, But I wanted to lift up this story so that you would know these are the kinds of conversations that are happening um, about us as Christians, um, and we have to know it. you got to know that this is what's going on out there in terms of the conversations of the day. Um, We're also being talked about uh, in the Wall Street Journal um, in terms of the way that Christians— are talking about, and I think it's the Washington Post's way of talking about the end of the world as if they're not thinking about it as well, Um, but but casting as the characters in the conversation, um, you know, Christians, particularly Christians who are focused on prophecy, we had a a conversation this week with Donna Van Leer about this. Um, in, In the Washington Post, the piece is, Russia's war on Ukraine has some Christians wondering, is this the end of the world? Um, and it's more. This piece is more well done than what you're going to see in some other places. But it still, it still suggests that people who believe that there is going to be an apocalyptic end of the world, as described in the Book of Revelation and the Book of Daniel and by Jesus Himself, um, that we're crazy. So I think that it's important to know what secular journalists um, are, or what secular journalistic sources, maybe I should say, the Washington Post in this case and Mother Jones, what they are saying and how they are saying it in terms of conversations related to Christians in the culture, our worldview, even though I'm just going to confess, as um, as you read the piece in Mother Jones, if you are like me, you're going to be disgusted by the use of Um, Christian imagery and language by people who are clearly, clearly not Christians—clearly not Christians—seeking to hijack um, the Christian faith for their own personal celebrity and to their own ends, which I think is what the writer intended to talk about and instead um, got swept up in uh, sort of a negative uh, description of everything uh, having to do with Christian worldview— So um, the title is Bannon, Milo, or Milo, and other right-wing activists are hell-bent on transforming the Catholic Church, starting with the Pope. I want to take one minute to just unpack uh, a few things there. First of all, right-wing activists is a political identification. That is not a Christian identification. Let's be really clear about that. Um, Hell-bent. That is an interesting word. When you see the word hell appear in a headline, you ought to take pause. What does it mean for someone to be hell-bent? What what does that mean? Bent toward hell? Moving people in the direction of hell? Motivated by hellish intent? What does it mean? What does it mean for individuals to be described as hell-bent on something? And then what are these individuals described as being hell-bent on? Transforming the Catholic Church. What does that mean and how does it happen? Who are we talking about when we're talking about the Catholic Church? Do you remember the Reformation? So, part of the language here that I think as a Protestant Christian I am searching for is the language of the Reformation, where the church is reformed and always being reformed according to the Word of God. That might be my answer to the author of this piece and Mother Jones. Um, We actually are a people who believe the church is called to be reformed and always continually reformed, but according to a particular standard, and that standard is the Word of God itself not the the political inclinations of fancy individuals in suede shoes on a big stage. There is a standard to which the church is called and church leaders are called and people singing to, seeking to bring reform to the church are called. And that standard is nothing less than the very word of God. So, um, there you go. Um, I love talking amongst ourselves from time to time. So thank you for um, participating in this conversation with me. If you've got things to say about this or other things, you can always text me, 877-933-2484, or just email me, carmen at myfaithradio.com. I think your day is about to get better as well. I'm going to be praying for you today. I, uh, I hope you'll be praying for me as well. Um, none of us knows exactly what we face in even the moments, let alone the minutes or hours or days ahead. We don't exactly know what the weekend will hold, but we do know who holds the weekend. And so let's be people who place ourselves intentionally today in the very hands of the living God. God, I'm yours. I'm yours like surround me with your love, Um, enfold me in your grace, fill me with your spirit, take me as an instrument in your hand and use me according to your will. Let's be those people today. Yes, agents of grace and ambassadors of the king and the kingdom, children of God. Let's also be instruments. What does it look like for you um, to be an instrument in the hand of the living God this day and in the days to come? Mmm, mmm, sweet melodies. Have a great weekend, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.